The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming to our seminar here in Perth. This is officially our second favorite city in Australia. Uh, thanks for that. Also, shout out to Sydney. You guys really, uh, you guys downplayed how great Perth is. Perth is awesome. You guys are great. So thanks for coming. These are curated questions submitted from our seminar here, uh, January 2024. If uh, your question didn't get picked, it's, it's also always Austin's fault. So again, send all hate mail to uh, Dr. Austin. No, anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right, so, and if you have to leave, Leah has uh, certificates for all the attendees, so make sure to check, uh, swing by where she's at on the way out. All right, let's get into it. What are your thoughts on using uh, fat percentage, body fat percentage, and DEXA scans as an assessment metric? If someone gets a DEXA scan, are there any specific targets for body fat percentage, lean body mass, et cetera? Okay, uh, this is a good question. So DEXA scan uses x-ray technology and based uh, on how that uh, it will diffuse through different types of tissues, whether it's fat or non-fat, and it can tell you pretty accurately what your body fat, what your uh, non-fat mass is, and what your bone mineral density is. That's uh, where it, was, it kind of started, and then people figured out, oh, you could determine uh, fat mass and non-fat mass. The problem with using it as a sort of metric to track your progress is that there's significant error rate indexa. So you guys uh, are all familiar with like the uh, bioelectrical impedance, the electrical uh, uses an electrical current to do the same thing. There's significant error rate in that, but people don't uh, seem to know that there's significant error rate in DEXA scan itself. Somewhere around 5% in most studies, uh, up to 10% in some studies for individuals. So that would mean that you'd need a change in either body fat or non-fat mass in at least 5% of at least 5% to make the test, uh, make you feel confident in the test result. So for example, going from 12% body fat to 10% body fat per DEXA scan does not make me feel very confident that you actually lost fat mass. And so for most individuals, because your uh, fat mass or non-fat mass uh, uh, body compartments are not gonna change that much in a relatively short period of time, the only real reason to use DEXA scan is if the numbers are super motivating to you and you're doing them at relatively uh, large, uh, long space intervals. So every few years, for example. But again, then I don't know what the utility of that is unless you just like the numbers. Uh, as far as a specific body fat sort of cut point, the World Health Organization back in the 90s suggested that for men, a body fat of 20% was sort of the upper limit before uh, the risks for excess adiposity, excess body fat sort of started. And for women, I believe it's 30%. Those haven't been in any sort of guidelines uh, ever since. Uh, the problem is one, how, uh, what sort of testing would you actually do? 
Um, and, and so DEXA wasn't really being used back then and nobody was going to advocate for people getting DEXA scanned uh, to sort of monitor how much body fat they had. So that was thing one. And then thing two is what we talked about during the obesity lecture is this idea of a personal body fat threshold, whereas some people will start accruing risk from having too much body fat at a much lower level, other people much higher. So I don't really see a good reason to use this unless you have a lot of money and you like the numbers and you're going to be spacing these out over a pretty long uh, interval. So again, every few years or something. DEXA scan, really, really good, uh, really, really useful in the research setting when you're using averages from groups of people, particularly large groups of people, because then the error rate is kind of accounted for, um, but on an individual basis, not as useful. Um, again, unless it's large changes, long intervals, in which case that can be fine. Last thing I'll say is you can really throw off the results of a DEXA scan um, based on your hydration level, carbohydrate intake. So if, for example, right before a DEXA scan, you went really low carb and you uh, uh, weren't consuming a lot of water, your body fat would artifact, uh, sorry, your lean body mass would artificially be depressed. And you'd be like, oh, I lost all this lean body mass or non-fat mass. What happened? It's like, yeah, you lost a bunch of water. And so again, most people don't appreciate the amount of error in the DEXA scan itself. And that doesn't mean it's a bad test. You just have to know the limits of the test and how you're going to use it. I'll just add a couple comments. The first, as it relates to body fat percentage as a metric that people put a lot of focus on, in addition to what you mentioned with respect to this concept of a personal fat threshold, different people developing disease or complications at different levels of body fat, body fat percentage as a number also doesn't account for variation in the distribution of body fat. So distribution is hugely important, whether it's predominantly concentrated in the abdomen or on the stomach, or more so you know, in the hips or in the extremities or things like that. If you just say 20%, you can have three people all 20% body fat with wildly different body fat distributions and on top of that different personal fat thresholds. Some might tolerate that level of body fat better than others. So that makes the body fat percent a less useful metric on its own. The other aspects of this question, one related to lean body mass. In other words, if I get a DEXA scan and it tells me how much lean body mass I have or muscle mass, should I aim, should I use that information to target a particular amount in the context of concerns about sarcopenia, for example, what we talked about yesterday? I'll fold this answer in with another question that we got. Um, relating to concerns around sarcopenia, the definition that I gave you was a reduction in muscle mass and muscle strength. And that addition of muscle strength into the definition was actually because when this has been examined, muscle strength seems to be a, bitter, a bigger predictor, a stronger predictor of worse health outcomes from sarcopenia than muscle mass uh, decreases. So if I had to pick between the two, of which am I going to put more emphasis on, the amount of muscle mass that somebody's carrying by some kind of imaging measurement or some kind of quantifiable metric of somebody's muscle strength, I will prefer their muscle strength and physical function 10 out of 10 times over a measurement of the amount of muscle mass that they have on their body. So that's another reason why I would not care as much about what a DEXA tells me, but rather I would use a strength metric or a physical performance metric. There are also standardized tests that can be used in the clinical setting to assess how functional somebody is in terms of their muscle, uh, muscle strength and muscle function. Um, and then the last thing, the aspect of DEXA scan where it is actually quite useful that we didn't talk about at all in this question is in the context of bone density evaluation, would recommend for appropriate people to get DEXA scans to assess bone density, although even then there's some error particularly can be problematic when people get DEXA scans at different imaging centers on different machines. Ideally, if it's possible for you to stay relatively consistent at the same institution, imaging center, same machine, over time that can give you a bit better results and I would expect a little bit less error in that context and again similarly hydration status and carbohydrate intake and things like that I wouldn't expect to have as much of an impact on bone mineral density whereas muscle mass water glycogen stores all that stuff can have a much bigger impact so I think that's a pretty comprehensive take on DEXAs. Uh, curious 
So the sarcopenia thing, I mean, you know, you're more concerned with the muscle function rather than the muscle mass. Like we know when people stop exercising, for example, whether it's due to illness, whether it's due to immobility, right, bed rest, or if they're part of a research experiment where they like cast or immobilize a particular limb, um, or they just stop training, that strength loss is the ha thing that happens first, far faster and far greater than muscle mass loss. And so muscle mass loss, uh, as far as significant levels of that occur months later in general, whereas the strength loss occurs relatively quickly. Now on the flip side, in sarcopenia, it may be that there's so much muscle mass loss that has to accrue first before you get that functional deficit. So I'm curious, like, do you think it's more of that in sarcopenia? Like you've had uh, sort of, you reach a certain threshold of muscle mass loss and then function declines, or um, that the it's happening both at the same time, whereas uh, muscle mass uh, may not actually be changing that much, but it may the actual construction of the muscle may be changing, replacement with of certain muscle fibers with fat, or for example, and that ultimately culminates in a decreased force production. Yeah, I don't know that there's one answer to this. I think that different patients with different underlying medical conditions that are contributing to their situation are gonna lose strength or muscle mass to greater or lesser degrees via different mechanisms depending on what medical condition they have going on. So I don't feel confident enough or knowledgeable enough to comment generally speaking on that. I agree, I just wanted to have a really leading question that also allowed me to demonstrate some knowledge. Very good. Okay. Question number two. How important is it to know lipoprotein little a status in the context of yesterday's discussion about cholesterol? And does it change how you treat patients? Yeah, so I will tackle this one. This is a, a blood test that I actually did not discuss explicitly in yesterday's lecture. Um, it's a test called lipoprotein little a, little meaning not capital. Um, it's a particle that circulates in the blood that is very similar to LDL, but has some additional things stuck onto it. It's recently been estimated that in terms of how much uh, lipoprotein little a can contribute to the risk of developing heart disease, if you compare one lipoprotein little a particle to one LDL particle, the lipoprotein little a is about six times more harmful than every LDL particle. So substantially more contributory on a particle per particle basis. The issue though is that there are many, many, many more LDL particles in the serum, in the, in the blood. So LDL particles far outnumber these ones. There are many fewer of them, but when these are present and when they're present in elevated quantities, it seems to be quite problematic for people. It can increase the risk of premature heart disease, aortic valve uh, uh, calcification and, and disease there, stroke, other sorts of clotting issues. The reason this is being asked at all, this is an active area of research right now, and there are some guidelines, particularly in Europe, that recommend that pretty much everybody has a one-time check of this blood level. And that one-time check is because this is a level that's really heavily determined by your genetics, for the most part. It's not something that's super modifiable with a lot of the dietary interventions that I talked about, for example, or exercise. And so the thinking is that if we check it in once in everybody, then we identify people with really high levels. And for those people, we can treat every risk factor we can find even more aggressively than we would in other situations. So that's the current state of things. There are, there's variation country to country in how this is handled. So you know, in some of the European guidelines, they're saying everybody one-time check. In the US, they don't recommend everybody one-time check. They say it can be, can, you can consider ordering it uh, in patients who seem to be developing cardiovascular disease in unusual uh, ways, early onset cardiovascular disease, people with aortic valve disease, and you can consider it as an additional risk factor to check on. Um, I heard that uh, here, some, one of the attendees asked their physician to check it, and they were like, no, we're not gonna do it. And I understand in part why, 
And the reason why is because we don't currently have approved treatments that directly attack that blood level. There are currently multiple uh, trials going on looking at interventions specifically to lower that level. In the same way I talked about in my lecture, I said we have very large body of evidence at this point, very clear, compelling evidence that as LDL burden increases over concentration and time, risk goes up, and when we treat it and lower it, risk goes down. We talked about HDL being kind of the opposite, right? Where it's a, it's a good prognostic indicator, but if, we, if it goes down, risk goes up, but if we treat it to improve it, it doesn't really do anything. So that itself is not a direct target for therapy. In the context of lipoprotein little a, I'm waiting any month, year now, to hopefully get results from these trials of directly treating these levels. And if we treat them and uh, they go down and risk goes down, that will be a significant change in this uh, whole field because that will radically change you know, guidelines, I suspect, for things like screening, for treatment, because we'll have a comprehensive body of evidence showing that quite harmful, if you screen for it, you can detect it. If you lower it, risk goes down. I, I suspect that would change things a lot. As I do it right now, when I'm able to get it covered, I do tend to do one-time checks in, uh, in my patients. Um, and for people, I've had some, some patients who had early onset aortic valve disease, for example, and I've checked it in them and found it to be quite elevated a couple times. And in those situations, I do tend to get even more aggressive with the other things that I can treat. So maybe something else that wouldn't have gotten me quite as concerned before, if it's in the context of somebody who has an elevation in this level, I'm saying, well, at this very moment, I can't necessarily attack this level, but I can work even harder on all the other things. So that's the current state of things. For anybody interested in this, there is a website uh, at uh, lpaclinicalguidance.com. If anybody's interested or clinician or anything like that, you can punch in numbers and it can tell you, here's what this is doing to your risk. Here's what you can get, you know, in terms of risk reduction by doing some of these other things. So that's the kind of current state of things, but I expect pretty dramatic changes in this field within the next few months to a couple of years. How do you best combat delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS, which seems to get worse as you age? Uh, I would probably take issue with the uh, assumption that delayed onset muscle soreness, like severity and incidence is necessarily worse as people get older. Um, so first, delayed onset muscle soreness, it, to me, is a normal occurrence in training in relatively infrequent uh, amounts, meaning that I think if you're training at an appropriate level for your current fitness level, your genetics, your goals, etc., I think it is likely that you're going to be sore after training sometimes. And in fact, if you're never sore, I think that you're probably underdosing your training. On the other side, if you're sore all the time, I think it is likely that your training is overdosed for what you currently need. The bigger issue with people as they age is just a lack of overall activity and a loss of fitness, which can be maintained through continued exercise at a similar level. But the problem is, in general, as people age, they accrue uh, various medical uh, conditions, various uh, uh, lifestyle and uh, social occupational restrictions um, that ultimately allows them or makes them less active. And so then the same sort of training that they were doing becomes more stressful and they get uh, more sore, which can be a deterrent to actually further participating in exercise, thereby, thereby begetting this sort of uh, uh, vicious cycle. So. I think that, uh, in general, you should be dosing training in a way that doesn't make you sore very often, but sometimes. If the training is making you sore all the time, it's probably too much. As far as what you can do if you think that your training is dosed appropriately, but you're getting sore more often and more at a higher severity level than you think is, is appropriate, a few things you can check. 
One is going to be protein intake. And I know Austin and I are both, we're, it's not that we're souring on protein. We just think that protein and higher protein intake levels are mostly overhyped because most people in developed countries consume a lot of protein. In the United States, for example, it's about one gram per kilo uh, body weight per day, which is not that far off our guideline recommendations, minimum, like 1.4 to 1.6. So just a little bit more protein is needed. Now, in older populations, that does tend to be lower. So it, it's probable that somebody who's not a gym rat, doesn't come from that background, is eating even less than that. And that could lead to sort of uh, a higher severity of delayed onset muscle soreness. So that's thing one. Thing two, looking at somebody's overall conditioning level, are they doing cardio? Uh, you know, which is going to improve their sort of general physical preparedness to deal with a lot of different types of exercise, their ability to recover, that needs to be uh, on point, so they're doing that. Their overall activity level, so what are they doing in addition to just lifting weights? And then uh, uh, obviously looking at the program itself as far as how it's being dosed. Uh, sure, things like sleep, environmental stress, all that stuff uh, can contribute, but I actually don't think that people uh, who are older necessarily are going to get more DOMS or worse DOMS than younger individuals if they stay well trained, if they're eating a, a, a good diet, if they're getting enough sleep. Now, and some of that stuff does seem to be more limited as people get older. I, I can see that being a case. I just don't know that, you know, chronological age in and of itself is a cause of increased uh, severity and prevalence of delayed onset muscle soreness. Yeah, there are some hypothetical or there's some, in fact, shown like mechanisms of how this could be the case in terms of changes of skeletal muscle structure as people get older, proteins like dystrophin and some other things that are not necessarily expressed or, you know, don't necessarily function in the same way and increase the risk of some exercise induced muscle damage. But that's all kind of more on the mechanistic level. And I think that to your point, you know, you talked in the injury lecture about like, could you hypothetically consider DOMS as a form of an injury? Of course, it depends. And we talked about definitions of injury and things like that. But if you combine that concept with how I discussed a basic approach to pain and injury in the gym, I would manage it the same way. If somebody's experiencing a lot of debilitating delayed onset muscle soreness, what were the steps that I talked about if somebody's experiencing pain and injury? Reducing load, consideration of exercise, you know, variations or alterations to the program, the dosage, the volume, things like that, to better match the program to the level, to the person's current level of fitness, right? And I'm gonna do that regardless of what their age is. If I have somebody who's 20 years old, who's telling me that they're sore all the time from their training, I feel like the program might be not poorly, uh, not well matched to their current level of fitness. If somebody's 50, same thing. If they're 100, same thing. And so ultimately the management of this, I'm going to approach similarly in terms of finding what variables I can manipulate to better match the program to the person's current level of fitness, just like I would if they had any other ache or pain or injury or something like that. And then through this concept called the repeated bout effect, upon repeated exposure to the same thing over and over again, you guys already know this, you tend to get less sore when you do something similar for the second time or for the third time. Again, assuming that you're not absolutely overdosing every time, right? You're not going into rhabdomyolysis from your first exposure and then you do the same thing all over again. That would yeah. be unwise. If you were trying to make somebody really, really sore, what would you have them, how would you, how would you do that? Most doms, how would you do that? Uh, are you guys here familiar with an exercise popular in CrossFit known as the glute ham developer sit-up? GHD sit-up. It's an elevated machine that they can lie back on and do a sit-up where they reach all the way back down to the floor and do that up. Probably have them do like 100 or 150 GHD sit-ups. You'd have them do an exercise they're unfamiliar with, yeah. a high level of volume, so a ton <laughs> of reps, uh, particularly in a competitive environment. Uh, uh, also with people yelling at you to keep going, don't stop, that sort of thing. Uh, ideally, it'd be very hot in there. You'd have limited access to fluids. Uh, yeah, I think that would do it. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yeah. And then you meet me in the hospital for rhabdo. That's right. <laughs> yep. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. All right, next question. Are there any tests or lab work that you'd recommend doing on an annual basis other than blood pressure and cholesterol that Austin mentioned yesterday. Yeah, so the first caveat here is I don't necessarily recommend people get a lipid panel done on an annual basis. That's a very context dependent thing. I do think everybody should get a lipid panel done, but it does not necessarily need to be annual. The frequency is gonna vary depending on the individual situation. I do think blood pressure should be checked at least every year. The current guidelines are once a year if you wanted to do it more than that and you can get it properly measured, great, that's totally fine. The other test, and the reason I included this question is because it's a very important one, and I think we have a larger proportion than usual in this, in our current audience here this weekend of uh, relatively less initiated in the context of some of our existing content on this topic. And what this topic is, is the idea of screening. How do we screen people for disease or risk factors for disease? Because it can be very compelling to say, I just want to get tested for everything, right? Or I just go to my doctor and just, just do my labs. Do everything. Check everything. Right? I want it all. And there's a lot of businesses and companies that market this to people. They can say, we can give you a comprehensive inside look at your uh, health. They'll do all sorts of tests and will give you this micro detail that seems very advanced, make you anxious as hell a lot of times and not knowing what to do with some of this information. And then you call us and say, hey, can I get a consultation because I got this lab work? And then my next question is, why? Why did you get it done, right? What, was, what led to this getting done? So the basic principles of screening are actually pretty important to understand to help us decide what is worth testing for and what is not worth testing for. And if not, why not, right? So these principles have been discussed and debated back and forth for many years, but in general, the things that are worth screening for are things that are important health problems, common, major problems. We don't screen for very rare esoteric diseases one in every 10 million people, right? So it should be a prevalent problem. It should be a condition that has a an non-symptomatic latent period, meaning it has a period of time for it to develop before it manifests. In other words, we're not gonna screen people in the population for an acute heart attack because those happen suddenly. I'm not gonna catch everybody who's not having one right now. So it needs to have a period to develop, like a lot of cancers when we screen for certain cancers, right? It should also have a cost-effective and acceptable test that we can actually do that gives us an accurate, reliable result. It could be a common health problem. It could have a latent period, but if we have no way to test for it, what are you gonna do, right? It should have a test and that test should be acceptable to people. In other words, if the only way to do it is that I need to rip you open and do laparoscopic surgery on you or something, uh, unacceptable, right? So something ideally minimally invasive um, if, if possible. You know, bordering some of those, you think about colonoscopy screening for colon cancer. That's about as invasive as people are willing to tolerate for a screening test, right? And then if we get it through all those steps, it should have a treatment that when administered early, substantially alters the trajectory of disease, right? So there's a few criteria baked in there and that treatment should be cost effective as well. If it costs $500 million a dose, probably not worth screening the whole population for this because that's unfeasible. On the other, at the same time, if we administer it early 
but it doesn't make a difference compared with if we administered it uh, to the person later when they had symptoms, then why are you bothering testing them for it early, right? So there's multiple layers to this of um, important problem, should have a latent period, should have a test, should have a treatment that when administered early will reduce the risk of progression to worse disease, disability, death, something like that. The number of conditions that meet those criteria in everybody population-wide are minuscule. That's why the only thing we've said <laughs> is basically blood pressure on this level of frequency. And then everybody, blood lipids, although the frequency of that will vary. Beyond that, there is not anything else that I would say, oh, every single human should get this done. Everything else should be more targeted in some fashion, targeted based on which populations are going to be at a little bit more risk. That's why screening bone mineral density for osteoporosis, we don't do that in 18-year-old boys. The prevalence of that condition is effectively zero in that population. We target it in people who are a little bit higher risk. Who do we target for the risk of colon cancer? Certain populations, not five-year-olds, right? Ovarian cancer, eww, that's a tricky one because it doesn't meet multiple of those criteria. Pancreatic cancer, brain tumors, uh, rare genetic conditions, right? Each one of these other things fails to meet one of these criteria. Now what do you think about these companies advertising to you that you should get your blood, vitamin, and mineral levels tested? What's the prevalence of substantial vitamin and mineral deficiencies in a developed country that lead to significant disability, premature death, symptoms, things like that? very uncommon outside of certain high-risk populations. People with excessive alcohol use issues, people who've had bariatric surgery and are not taking their multivitamin, those are the kind of people in whom I'd be a little bit more suspicious, whereas somebody who says, yeah, I'm eating a great diet, I follow all these, all these fitness influencers, you know, I'm getting my fruits and vegetables and lean proteins and I'm training and my body weight's at a healthy composition, I just figured I'd get my, you know, molybdenum level checked or something like that. And it's like, this is a waste of time and effort and money and everything. But it makes you feel good to get a test result that has a green number on it. Or what if it has a red number on it and it says your level's a little too low? Or even worse, you have a little too much molybdenum. What do I do now? Oh my God. Right? So these screening is an extremely complex uh, topic that is very poorly understood because in the general population, it's very attractive and a lot of people live by the mantra of, well, I think more information is always better, right? And this is uh, inaccurate. A lot of time, more information just leads to more anxiety, more neurosis, more medical testing, more complications, um, unnecessary treatments, unnecessary supplementation, um, and things like that, which of themselves can have various harms. So if anybody's interested in this topic, we have a podcast on the topic of screening on our uh, channel. I've been on other podcasts to talk about this topic at length, if you can't tell. Um, and so I would not recommend aggressively pursuing all sorts of testing just to get more information. I would get your blood pressure checked, I would get your blood lipids checked. Depending on what, what pans out here soon with lipoprotein little a, maybe that's something that'll end up getting recommended to be checked on a much more broad basis. And then everything else is much more demographic specific. And that's something you can talk to uh, your physician about of based on my demographic, age, sex, medical history, are there other things that I ought to be screened for that are worth checking? And if not, and you feel fine and you don't have any other symptoms or complaints, don't try to become a patient. Just go on living your life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting it's uh, an interesting tell that, you know, we have uh, access to a lot of healthcare, and we have a lot of resources and we both have relatively high amounts of free time to like track that down. 
and neither of us is going for like a full body scan to you know just to check or like very extensive hormonal panels or vitamin panels or nutrient panels or other testing just to see even though we could we could interpret it and some of them even if they cost a lot of money to like manage we could do that too but because we know this stuff relating to screening the harms of screening um we don't do it it's not ne that we're neither dislike. of us have ever had our testosterone levels checked that's true yeah ever yeah no idea yeah i don't care because I don't have any of the clinical symptoms associated with low testosterone, so I don't need to check it. And, but people, like, they really want to know because uh, either somebody told them that's really important, and so they just want to check just to, you know, cross the, you know, check that box. Uh, but I think without symptoms or without a real good reason to go down the rabbit hole of testing, you likely cause more harm than good. Yeah, we recently consulted with a guy who had his testosterone level checked without a great reason to, and it was a little lower than he wanted it to be, and suddenly, uh, my training's not going as well as I want. It's probably because of this testosterone. He got on the testosterone and had a horrible experience on it. And I'm not generalizing this to say that testosterone replacement is horrible for everybody. It gives people horrific side effects. Most people tolerate it fine. It's actually quite safe, particularly when it's dosed reasonably and monitored. But he had a very unpleasant experience with this that he could not tolerate it for various reasons and had to stop. And he was like, that was, that was a giant mistake. All of that was a giant. I should not have done it. I shouldn't have got it checked in the first place. Yeah. like been saying this you yeah. know but i understand you know uh, uh how this ends up happening so yeah uh, all right when would you consider the use of pain medications appropriate in the context of an otherwise healthy person i assume you're just going to say when you get paid <laughs> is that not is that not it uh that was not the idea oh shoot yeah i mean i think that when somebody is suffering and seeking relief from pain i think it is a reasonable thing to discuss with the person now when i have these conversations the discussion is not typically they come in with pain, I say, here's your medicine, indefinite prescription, see you later, right? We're talking about a lot more things. All the things that I laid out in my pain lecture that I'm addressing from the biological standpoint, the psychosocial standpoint, assessing their pain experience, what are the levers that I can work on? And then discussing whether a pain medication may be appropriate in this person to achieve a particular goal in a particular time frame. Ideally with the goal of we can work on these other things We can use this pain medicine perhaps to help you sleep in the short term because I know that if I can get you sleeping more Consistently, maybe that'll help with pain intensity get you more active and maybe we'll be able to come down on the use of this pain medicine over time If that's possible um, in some situations, it might not be possible and that person may actually Experience less suffering without undue harm or side effects by being on some sort of a pain medicine on a longer-term basis Sometimes that's necessary that's fine. I would rather somebody suffer less without great risk or cost by using an analgesic medication long term rather than saying that they just should suffer through it just so that they can earn their gold star at the time of death that I made it through life without taking a medication, yeah. right? Which we alluded to that in the obesity lecture and things like that. This idea of people just being averse to the use of these tools that we have available to us, right? So that would be my, that would be as simple as I can make it, I think. Yeah, I mean, and even to make it more accessible, uh, there's some discussion about around the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, so ibuprofen and similar uh, with training. Originally there was this thought, oh, it'll blunt muscle protein synthesis response, the anabolic response to exercise. Now, we found that to not be true, basically the short-term changes in muscle protein synthesis don't really correlate to like long-term improvements in strength, muscle mass, stuff, stuff like that. So uh, that's seemed to be uh, disproven. But what you find is that people who have uh, like severe osteoarthritis, for example, that improves with use of ibuprofen, it allows them to be more active, which 
further improves their osteoarthritis. So you can use it as a tool when needed. Um, but I, I assume that question was about opio like opioid prescription is probably what people meant. And yeah, there's obviously, you know, when you're weighing out the risk benefit of this, you just have to uh, do a, a pretty extensive job there. And again, it doesn't, the interaction doesn't just uh, end with, and here's your prescription, that, that's it. There's more to do there. And, yeah, uh, if that was specifically referring to opioids, that's a much more complex question. And yes, in a generally healthy person with pain, I'm typically trying to avoid initiating and certainly perpetuating the long-term use of opioids, at, if at all possible. Yeah. Um, because that's a much more risky scenario compared to the use of more benign analgesic medications. Yeah. In fact, long-term use of opioids can cause a phenomenon called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Hyperalgesia being the opposite of analgesia. Analgesia referring to pain relief. So let's work backwards. Hyperalgesia means an increase in pain intensity and sensitivity. And mm -hmm. so chronic use of opioid medications can cause opioid-induced hyperalgesia, more pain, um, which can perpetuate additional problems as well as all the other potential adverse effects of opioids. So that's a good reason to uh, try to avoid initiating and certainly perpetuating long-term use of them. But sometimes even then, not really possible. I treat, I see and treat a lot of patients with various severe chronic painful conditions, a, a, a high fraction of those are due to cancer-related pain, and I am quite liberal with prescribing uh, opioids to patients with chronic cancer-related pain, uh, particularly in more advanced stages and things like that. All right. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.